Hi, this is Rosie Pryor with Stone Sober Mom, and today I'm going to share with you an essay that I wrote for the Ebb and Flow Festival in Baton Rouge this weekend that I read there, um, and it was an essay written for the O'Brien House Treatment Center there. Um, it's a treatment center for addiction and substance abuse, and it's called The Skin of Humanity. When I was 25, I took a rafting trip with my family through the Grand Canyon. I snuck pills into the pockets of my suitcase and squirreled cigarettes into stuffed pairs of socks so my parents wouldn't notice. The 12 cases of Bud Light I required for the duration of the 10-day journey were placed in a mesh sack that was tied to the back of our raft and drug along the bottom of the Colorado River beneath us, like a wrecking ball, like me. One evening toward the end of our trip, our deeply suntanned rafting guide let slip that she could read palms. Each of us lined up and waited for our turn. Those in front of me all seemed pleased with their outcomes. Long life, prosperity, love, success, etc. When it came to my turn, the clairvoyant hippie's brow furrowed. She said quizzically, There's a break in your fate line. I blinked, then looked down and traced a split with my other hand. I drew in a breath and looked up at her. I know, I said. I knew, even then, something inside me was split. I knew deep inside myself that the me inside the canyon that day was not meant for this world, that her life was not meant to be a long one, that she wasn't like everyone else. Prosperity, love, happiness were like sand through the broken fault lines of her stupid, pointless hands. I went back to my sandy tent, dug into my pack, and broke off another half a pill. Silence, brief, but loyal. Perhaps it was under this crisp blanket of Arizona desert stars all those years ago that something buried deep within my soul started to shift. Oblivious at the time to precisely what was shaping and informing the darkness inside me, I at least understood that it was, that it existed, that I contained this massive rupture that couldn't be filled, a grand brokenness that pushed its way in, ever widening the chasm between my head and my heart, my body and my soul. It would be ten more years before I clawed my way to the top, hand over fist, blister over scrape, over cut, over bruise, over beating. Around the eighth grade, some twenty years ago, a perfect storm emerged. Allie McBeal hit the scene in all her enviable, emaciated splendor, as did an unwelcome wave of hormones and pimples. At one point that year, some boy in the lunch line asked me if I was trying to grow a mustache. And then, when I asked my dad if he thought I was pretty, he responded with, you're average. The soils of my impressionable adolescent brain had now been fertilized, as the stealthy seeds of neuroses were sprinkled into each carefully prepared garden row. Self-consciousness, insecurity, body shame, anxiety, depression, and eating disorders. I wrapped my prepubescent arms around the new tender seedlings and watered them daily. I watched them grow like weeds until they finally filled all the empty holes in my garden. But, like a game of whack-a-mole, just when I thought I had them all covered up, a new, unwelcome rodent would rear its ugly head and reveal yet another empty spot in the ground. In high school, I tried to plug the holes with cigarettes and gossip and hot hate and debilitating jealousy, with soccer and student council and show choir and bad boyfriends and banner oil, with shrinking smaller and smaller until eventually I disappeared. Between school and soccer practice, I would drive myself home, 
down a tub of spaghetti and chase it with a pint of vanilla bluebell ice cream. Then rush to the bathroom in the back of the house and throw it up before my mom got back from picking up my younger brother from school. It was invigorating, empowering, reckless, and rebellious. I was all in. When I dipped below 85 pounds my junior year, my parents broke down and brought me to see a shrink. I used to fill my shoes and pockets with loose change so the scales would tip in a more satisfactory direction. I started taking Prozac and put on a couple pounds to appease the relevant parties. My senior year, my dad sat me down in the study for a sobering conversation about my future. I was still dipping and diving and binging and purging, and my parents, having exhausted all their resources in order to cure me, were at a loss. They decided to give me an ultimatum. I could either use the money in my college fund to go to college, or I could use the money in my college fund to go to rehab for my eating disorder. I knew what I had to do. I got rid of my eating disorder, packed my bags, and hightailed it to the LSU dorms. College meant freedom, which, at the number one party school in the nation, meant booze. Lots of it. All of it, in fact. Within a couple of months, I had been kicked out of my sorority, was seeing an alcohol counselor, and had moved out of Miller dorm and was in my grandparents' house across town. To mark this time as devastating and humiliating would be a gross understatement. I was supposed to be having the time of my life. Why did this feel like the end of my life? What was wrong with me? A few years later, I found myself as an upperclassman with a demanding curriculum. Struggling with both an eating disorder and a perpetual hangover, school seemed impossible. Life seemed unmanageable. I kept having mental breakdowns. I was so overwhelmed with it all. That is, until my therapist suggested that I might have adult ADD, attention deficit disorder. I failed the obligatory test with flying colors and left the office with a brand new diagnosis and a prescription for Adderall. Adderall a blanket treatment for bad grades, eating disorders, and depression, AKA my miracle drug. Adderall fixed everything. My grades went up, my weight went down, and I was euphoric and focused and high on life. I could stay up all night doing schoolwork or drinking or both, magic. However, I started to notice this persistent nagging notion inside my head, a voice telling me that this new me wasn't the real me, that it was a counterfeit me, that it was a person taking a pill pretending to be me, that I was pretending, that I was faking it, that I was cheating myself. And deep down, I knew the voice had it right. After college, I took a work holiday trip to New Zealand. It was there that I met my husband at a bar, go figure. He's from England, but was in New Zealand on the same work visa as me. We bonded over expensive pints of local brew. The more I drank, the easier it was for me to understand him through his thick English accent. A year later, we were married. We moved to England and started our lives there as newlyweds. We were young and poor and cold, and too poor to turn on the central heating. It felt like winter all year round, and it rained a lot, just like in the movies. I padded myself from the noise in my heart, the static in my mind, and the dreariness around me, with plenty of pipes at the pub, and the Adderall prescription I had to sneak back through customs every time I made a visit home. My own personal drug mule. We moved back to Louisiana and had a baby then another. All the while, I was becoming more and more distant, retreating deeper and deeper into the thicket of my spreading disease. Meanwhile, my husband and I grew further and further apart. I knew I was drinking too much, but I didn't know how else to cope with being a new mom. I tried to quit, but couldn't. I tried again, to no avail. I tried to quit pills, but couldn't do that either. At some point along the way, I had become powerless, more so than I was willing to admit at the time. I would quit nursing my babies just so I could fill my script. I was drinking more to forget that I couldn't quit drinking, 
then drank even more to forget that I was drinking, to forget that I was drinking, to forget that I couldn't quit drinking. And the vicious cycle continued. I traded Adderall in for a newer, more sophisticated, smoother model called Vyvanse. Vyvanse and Adderall in today's world are what Valium was back in the 60s. Mommy's little helper, they called it. A silent, socially acceptable pandemic. Nobody talks about it. Everybody takes it. I know. I was one of them. I was taking so much Vyvanse that I had to drink around two bottles of wine per night just to get to the point where my heart stopped pumping out of my chest. I chased my evening dose of Xanax with wine too. Then I took a sleeping pill on top of that. Most nights I passed out of my daughter's bed and had to be carried in a blackout by my husband back to our bedroom. I would wake up in our bed with no recollection of how I got there. God, I don't miss that. I became so frail, so thin, a wisp. My butt disappeared. My cheekbones jutted out from dry, sallow skin. It was all I had ever wanted, I thought. Hollow, like my eyes, lifeless, no light behind them. I had everything I ever wanted, and still I wanted more. Still I was searching and crashing and breaking things and trying to plug holes and fill cavities with things outside myself, things that melted and dissolved and disappeared within hours and minutes and seconds. I was still drinking and abusing chemicals and wrecking and hurting and wishing. It would all just end. Because at the pith of me, at the core of my being, I was pure evil. I was wicked and writhing and wringing my hands over my prey. I was manipulative and dishonest and self-seeking and self-loathing and jealous and reckless and rotten. I brought everything I touched to ruin. My family, my friendships, my dreams, my body, my heart, my lungs, and my life. Everything was wilting and falling away around me. My mere existence in this world was causing nothing but pain for the people I love the most. If I couldn't make them happy, what purpose did I serve here? What use was I to anyone? I decided then that I didn't want to live anymore. I decided that I didn't want to hurt anymore. I thought about running away. I thought about ending it all so that they could all just get on with their lives and finally find happiness and finally no peace. And then, a drunken fight at a best friend's beach wedding. Divorce threats hissed as rings hurled across a bay window. The poison of the night before coursing through my veins. A long drive home. I started doing research on how to control alcohol because I thought my husband needed help. By divine intervention, I came across a book that single-handedly changed my life called This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. I started reading secretly, feverishly, hungrily. Suddenly and subtly, and ever so slowly, a light in the deepest recesses of my consciousness began to flicker, then catch, then stay. I closed the book. I put down the bottle. I called my brother, who had already been sober for two years. He sat down beside me. We mapped out a plan, a new plan, a new start. I borrowed money from my parents. I joined an outpatient recovery program. I read every addiction memoir I could get my hands on. The light grew brighter. I started a recovery blog, a platform where I could share my stories of struggle, strength, grit, and hope. I started going to AA meetings. I got a sponsor. I cried. I fought. I wrote a goodbye letter to alcohol. I grieved the death of the person I had been. I grew curious, interested in the person I was becoming. I began to soften into my own skin. I began to let myself grow. I began to let myself eat. I began to surrender. I began to loosen my grip. I began to do each next right thing. 
I began to live one day at a time. I began to emerge like a butterfly from his chrysalis. The light grew brighter still, within me and around me, until eventually it became me. It was only in recovery that I recovered my true self. It was only by letting go of the one thing I thought I could never let go of that I was able to be saved. You see, I didn't need to fill myself with forgetting in order to be fixed. I didn't need to delete myself from this world in order to become a part of it. I simply needed to let myself fall apart. I needed to let myself fall into the arms of the ones who came before me, the ones who knew my heart, the ones who lived what I had lived and felt what I had felt and suffered the same pains and fought the same battles and waged the same wars and lived to tell the tale. I needed to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. It did. It does. My story was forged by the wind and the rain and the harshness and the terror of what lived inside me. I was saved by the sky and the spirit and the skin of shared humanity, by those who helped put me back together, one step at a time, one day at a time, one minute at a time, one whole and perfect and holy hand at a time. So perhaps when this canyon of your life is turned upside down, it becomes the shape of the mountain. Perhaps I have been given this mountain. Perhaps you have been given this mountain to show others that it can be moved.